Welcome back to Simple Interrupted, a podcast about radical veterinary change. I'm your host, Mary Schwartz, and this is episode seven. On today's show, we welcome someone that knows the veterinary industry like the back of her hand, Nicole Clausen, coming to give you a few pro tips on end of year inventory counts. She has over a decade of experience ranging from receptionist, technician assistant, lead receptionist, inventory manager, and operations manager. We'll discuss the importance of end of year counts and give you tips on improving the process and keeping it accurate. Also on today's episode, we look back at some great moments from special guests, and we thank you for listening to Simple Interrupted. But first, I'm excited to welcome Nicole. Welcome, Nicole. It's so great to have you on today. I'm excited to talk to you a little bit about end-of-year inventory because that is a project that I always gritted my teeth to get through and would give out gift cards and recruit people to help me and things like that can be a big project. So I would love to have you kind of share some of your knowledge and expertise with our listeners, starting with kind of walk us through why end of your inventory matters so much. Why is it so important? Yeah, that's such a great question. Thanks for having me on the show. So one of the biggest reasons why our end of year inventory count matters is for tax purposes, really, and accounting purposes. So that's Mm -hmm. kind of the big one. But also, I find the end of year inventory counts to be super helpful because it gives us a really clean slate to start off the first of the year with, right? We know what we have on hand. We know what's expiring. It's just kind of like a good project. I mean, I'll use the term good loosely. Um, (laughs) Way to kind of get the year started right so that it's not, you don't feel like you're going into the first of the year with like this huge inventory mess. Yes. Nobody wants to start off the new year already having a big mess to tackle. That's for sure. If you've never done counts before of this, you know, magnitude, where would you suggest starting and kind of how would you suggest staying organized throughout the process? Yeah. So that's a really good topic. So when I very first was an inventory manager, the practice I was at hadn't counted in nine years. So nothing had been counted. The practice management system was just a mess. And so one of the things that really helped me before even getting started was to kind of look at my inventory list and see, did I have anything that I didn't carry anymore on that list? Did I have things that weren't added in? And so because it turned out a lot of the products that were in the software system at the time hadn't been used in years. And so doing some of that first initial cleanup was really helpful for me because then when I was actually counting, I was able to get through it a lot more quickly. But then if you're just kind of a brand new inventory manager and you're thinking about kind of like this daunting process, what I really like to do is I like to separate it by category. So if your practice management system allows you to print like counting sheets by category, I love starting with that. Now, if you are taking on this process by yourself, that's one thing. But if you're going to have helpers in your practice or other team members help you out with this process, you can kind of assign or delegate different categories to different people. And I find, you know, if you have a dentistry technician who is an absolute rock star at dentistry, have them count the dental category. For your surgery technician, since they are super familiar with all things in the surgery suite, definitely start there. You know, and so you can kind of delegate these counting responsibilities to the people where it makes kind of most sense. Then when you're actually on in like 
on your count days, one of the things that I found to be most helpful, if you're able to, is to have people do the counting. Mm -hmm. Then you are available to answer any questions about where things live, and you're able to start entering those counts into your system right on that same day. Because I found when I had separated it where either like I was also counting and then I would, you know, spend the next couple days <laughs> at least <laughs> entering those counts. It was a lot more lengthy process. Mm-hmm. So I found that when I had folks count and then I enter the counts on the same day, it really made it go a lot more Um, quickly. Yeah. And sometimes by the time you count and enter it yourself, the numbers have changed. So it can be a little bit, (laughs) it's a little bit of a rush project, right? Yes. I love the delegation piece of it. It's so important, especially as you get into larger hospitals that have so much inventory on hand. It's really important to delegate that stuff. What is the earliest in the year that someone could feasibly start counting and still have numbers for end of year that are accurate enough? Usually, you know, it depends on if you are doing cycle counts. So if you have never heard of cycle Mm -hmm. counting, cycle counting is where you count small amounts of inventory frequently throughout the year. I have some folks that are so routine on their cycle counts, they keep their inventory accurate the whole year. So they really don't need to do Mm -hmm. this massive end of year count. But if you don't currently do cycle counts or maybe your practice management system is a little, um, you know, questionable, you can start in (laughs) December, but then you might have to count some of your really like high volume things that you're just going through like water, you might have to maybe spot check those and make sure those are kind of accurate as we get closer. But usually starting in December is always a good way to go. Perfect. And yeah, cycle counts, definitely the gold standard of handling inventory there, right? So if you are looking at getting into cycle counts or looking at improving your inventory, definitely something that you'll probably dive into on our upcoming webinar. Yes, definitely be talking about cycle counts. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Before I let you go today, are there any other end of your best practices or anything else that you would want to make sure our listeners know to do? I think the biggest thing is just to give yourself a little bit of grace and remember that this is a huge project. And also, if you feel like this is a huge project and you feel like you're the only one that has like this huge thing, like don't worry about it because a lot of other people struggle with inventory and, you know, your end of year counts are this big project a lot of times, or you're certainly not alone there. Just kind of like a few tactical tips. Um, When you are counting, make sure to take into account prescriptions that are waiting to be picked up, but they're not yet paid for and posted. Mm. So just make sure. So um, like in Avomark, for example, you can run the unposted transaction reports to see what is kind of waiting and to be picked up. There is often um, reports in other software systems that you can run. So I always like to make sure to either take that into account before kind of like adjusting the counts in your practice management system. The other thing is, is when you're going into counting, consider are you going to be open during this process or closed? If you're going to be open, I like to count a few items, adjust them. A few items, adjust them. But if you Mm -hmm. are closed, that makes things a lot more easy to where you can count more and then like adjust in a larger section. And if this is also the first of the year, it's okay if you don't get it perfect the first time, right? Because that's, you know, 
We're human, unfortunately. Yeah. And so just kind of taking that time and realizing that this year might be a challenge, but hopefully next year and it'll keep getting better after that. Yes, absolutely. Tune into the webinar, listen how to do cycle counts, and next year you'll have an even better experience end of year for sure. Yes, that's the hope. (laughs) (laughs) I am really grateful to you for sharing a couple of bits of your extremely vast inventory knowledge. And where can folks find you, follow you, etc. if they want to learn more? Sure. So I am on just about most of the social media channels, minus Twitter, I still don't quite understand it. Um, you can find me on <laughs> Pinterest at Veterinary Care Logistics. I have a lot of vet med stuff, design inspiration, organization pictures. I also have a free inventory management community where you can connect with inventory managers. You can find us on Facebook or off Facebook, the Veterinary Inventory Strategy Network. You can also find me all sorts of places. And I have um, quite a few free guides on my website if you want to download them. It's vetlogic.co slash education. That is great. Tons and tons of awesome resources to tap into. Thanks so much, Nicole. I really appreciate your time today. Of course, Ryan. Thanks so much for having me. Of course. I'd like to thank Nicole of Veterinary Care Logistics for joining us to discuss end-of-year inventory. If you want to learn more, be sure to check out the resources linked in the show notes. We want to thank you for tuning in to every episode of Simple Interrupted. Welcome back, and if you are new to the podcast, keep listening as we look back on some of our favorite moments from our guests on this show. We want to give a special thanks to all of them for joining us and having these much-needed conversations. Let's look back on the discussion about clinic culture. We talked with Dr. Sarah Wooten and Amy Newfield about the importance of creating a better work culture in your clinic, as well as effective methods to retain new and current staff. Easier said than done, right? Well, it's always helpful, I think, to involve your team, um, really looking at the strengths of everybody who's involved um, and inviting them to become part of something bigger by leveraging their strengths. I like utilizing StrengthsFinder to identify that because then you see where everybody's strengths are at. And if you do that, you'll actually get more buy-in because they feel included. They feel important. They'll become your champions. And then their passion and energy and strength helps bring others along and removes it from all being on one person, right? So that's kind of my pro tip there. I normally take a very systematic approach. And so the first thing is whenever we're trying to change an issue or we are noticing that there's large cultural-based issues in our hospitals is identifying what they think the problems are. We as leaders have an idea of what we think the issues are, but we need to ask them because that's going to gauge better buy-in. And so you can do that through engagement surveys or one-on-one conversations, but getting everyone's opinion and then looking within those opinions, whether it be an engagement survey or sitting down at a meeting and saying, everybody has one to two minutes to tell me things that you think need to be improved upon by this hospital, go, whatever that looks like to get that information. We pull out the trends. And one of the biggest trends that's always on there is communication. And communication comes in a lot of forms, right? Like teams battling other teams, front desk and and the treatment area having issues, whatever that looks like. We have to pull out then only two, no more than three items and work on them. A lot of times when we want to change, say, get rid of gossip, a manager will sit down with their team, have a team meeting and say to the team, hey, everyone, do you admit that there's a lot of gossip? Yes, we all do. Okay. I need you to stop. 
pats themselves on their back and walks away. And then suddenly, magically, they stop gossiping. No, they don't, right? And so in order to create change, we need to develop out plans. And I think this is where we start to see that failure. It goes above and beyond just the one conversation. We have to sit down and we have to figure out how can we stop gossip? What does that look like? Can we formulate a no gossip um, agreement for our hospital? Can we come up with a committee? Is there a fun catchphrase or a slogan? How do we reward those for improving the culture? And then we have to keep reminding them because the team did not start off gossiping. Whenever anybody opened a brand new hospital, they were happy. They joined the hospital happy, carefree, and not gossiping. So it took months for us to get there. It took years probably us to get there. It's going to take a long time for us to pull back on the gossip that's so embedded in the walls. But it really starts with just formulating a plan, revisiting that plan, every single meeting, sitting down and saying, hey guys, what do you think about the no gossiping? How's it going? What do you think we could do differently? Do we think we're, we're nailing it this month? And just keep addressing it. I always tell people that changing anything is a marathon. It's not a sprint. And so we're probably looking at an average of a hospital really feeling the impact of change, particularly in a culture setting, about nine months to a year, which sounds a little daunting. But remember, it took you a long time to get there. So we're going to do due diligence, put in the legwork, and we're going to get there. It's okay. It doesn't have to be a race. So yeah, that's my recommendation. It's like pregnancy weight. Nine months on (laughs) (laughs) for the birth of your new clinic. Yes, exactly. The birth of a new clinic, birth of a new culture. There are plenty of good examples to start building better work cultures, and it starts with involving your team. And remember, it's a marathon, not a sprint. What happens when your team becomes toxic? While it's not all that uncommon to find, toxic work environments must be addressed. Let's look back on the time we talked with Alyssa Mages and Dr. Phil Richmond about ways to approach negative behavior and create a better workspace for your employees. How would you guys feel about talking a little bit about psychological safety in the workplace? Oh. Is this like- It was on fa- the tip of my tongue, right? And I was like, oh. As soon as we were saying trust- Oh yeah, yep. it was right at the top of my head as soon as y'all right started there. talking. So yeah. That's my jam. Let's dive into how to create a workspace that fosters psychological safety for your employees. Take it away, Phil. (laughs) Okay. When we talk about psychological safety, the basis of psychological safety is trust and psychological safety. So trust in that I believe that my teammates want to do the best job possible. I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt. I also believe that if I make a mistake or if I'm in a situation, that that team is then going to give me the benefit of the doubt. If I say, to your point, Mary, I need a day today. Got it. I'm on board that that person is making the best decision for themselves and the team. And I'm not, you know, I'm not circling to, oh, they just, you know, they're lazy or they don't want to be part of the team or they're not not invested in us. That's not psychological safety. But it's very much that I feel comfortable taking risks, be it, you know, bringing up new ideas that I feel you know, I can be a vulnerable with this team. If a mistake happens, I feel comfortable bringing it up. Also, if I make a mistake that I'm not hit with the flamethrower in the middle of the treatment by the doctor, um, <laughs> that, that the, you know, that, that somebody's going to say, hey, one, we're human. Two, I believe you're, you are a competent professional. And we start looking into the systems as to why that happened. Not, you, not that you are a fit. Like we, we have something in this system that we can do better. Uh, and that we we look at it from a growth mindset. To build that 
is <laughs> get, you know, we can we can spend a significant amount. I mean, we could spend the, the whole rest of the day talking about it, which would be great. It's true. Um, but the thing is, is that it's also very fragile. So we need to have a basis of civility in the workplace. We need to be able to communicate with each other in a in a healthy way. We need to be able to be honest with empathy. So I can I can say something to you if I if there needs to be a course correction, but before I say it, I think about being in your shoes and how that's going to land. So I'm not saying, "Hey, I need to talk to you after work." Mm. You know, and you know, and walking off because we all know, like we're staying. You know, even if I'm even if I'm making the charitable assumption that it's good, it's still challenging. It still takes a lot of emotional work to to bring down my uh, my temperature gauge. But that th- those are two big ones: being honest with empathy and and civility in the workplace, and then having a growth mindset is huge. Being able to listen to other people uh, appreciatively, not you know, actually hearing what they're saying, where they're coming from, um, those are those are some of the cores of psychological safety. Yeah, there's not much else I can add to that other than it allows you to be your authentic self, mm-hmm. right? And then when you show up authentically, real work happens. And it's also you know to that point, and we've all been there. Like when we've had a you know, we've slammed through a 15 appointment day. Everyone was on time. We got everything entered. Everything went well. And then our last, like my last tech appointment of the day, I, I nicked the quick on a toenail. I don't remember anything else, mm-hmm. but that, that bad thing that I did. And to, to your point, Phil, is to have that center of, you know, of trust and safety where it's like you fail, but they build you back up. Remember all the good that you did it's a toenail. It's fine. That's what we have quick step for. It's, it's, it's fine. And it really is fine because we're our own worst critics anyway. So if we are surrounded by all of our own worst critics, that doesn't make for a fun place to be. So to allow that authenticity to shine through and to be kinder to ourselves and one another. But again, we've, we've all said it too, if there's not that structure in place, and that really is a part of it too, is you need to establish structure. And I know rules are meant to be broken, not in medicine though, guys, like there's a reason we have SOPs, right? So to have that structured approach to back to your earlier point, Phil, of onboarding and orientation all the way through a person's career path, like this is what this is in place for. And to say, hey, it's all right. You're not at that stage yet. You're still learning. You're still developing. And you, you just started implementing these skills. And to have that ability to remind one another that we are growing. We're not in a fixed, stagnant place, right? Our mindset is open to the fact that we can grow and develop and we got to do it together. Yeah. And two huge things that I would say is when we think about the importance of psychological safety, if Alyssa says something to me in treatment and I misinterpret it and we have a toxic culture, think about the amount of time, just on average, that we've been in one of those workplaces. Think about how much time and effort in our mind is spent. Did she do this? Did, you know, man, did she do this? Is, was she thinking this? And then what does that do? That puts us into our threat mode, into our stress response. That stress response gets kicked in the same as us running from a tiger. It decreases our cognitive ability by about 40%. It doesn't allow us to access the thinking and rational part of our brain. We can't be as efficient uh, and effective as we normally can be if we're in a a positive, uplifted state. So this isn't woo-woo. You know, this is is incredibly vital. So, you know, when I hear, you know, talking about emotional intelligence and psychological safety and, oh, that's soft skills, 
these are these are mission mission critical skills. I mean, yeah. these absolutely affect how patient care is delivered, how the clients perceive it. Because um, I can say, I can go over discharge instructions for a newly diabetic patient. If I'm in a toxic environment, that may land a heck of a lot different than if I'm in a, a really positive environment that I can be there and show empathy towards that client. It allows me to tap into that emotional intelligence where if I'm in threat mode all day, I can't access it. I can't tap into those things. And basically, I'm just saying words that come off potentially uncaring. That lands differently with that client. That's potentially going to affect the way that patient is cared for. So these are real world things that we, you know, that, that are vital in in the pra- in practice. Yeah. Yeah, they're not soft. They're not human soft, skills. No. <laughs> right. This is how we. This is how we human, right? So that's I use it. I call them human skills because that's how we learn to be humans. Because yes, we're medical professionals, but I'm a person first, and I know we got into this industry to work with animals, but they come with people. Yeah, every animal has a person at the end of the leash. Rome and relationships aren't built in one day. Engaging in these tough conversations is not easy, but as a manager, it's crucial to figure out a solution that works for everyone. What action can managers take to retain their clinic staff and help them grow? Let's take a look back at an episode where we dive into this much needed conversation on staff retention and growth opportunities with two passionate professionals, Paige Allen and Netta Panuska. The other piece of that is that it empowers people in their jobs to have that ability to grow and learn, those that want to, right? We already talked about those who want to. And being able to make that leap and have that light bulb go on and know that when they're looking at Fifi the dog who's in pain and they're recognizing those pain signs and they can advocate for that patient with the veterinarian, that I understand physiologically what's going on and Fifi's not doing well. And we have to address that because Fifi's not going to heal if we don't get her some pain meds. Absolutely. So how can we start generating these conversations in clinic? How can managers have these conversations with their staff about creating growth opportunities and opening up new career avenues to their teams? How would you suggest going about that? I think the first step has to be an open conversation about where they are and where they want to be, where their interests are, where their passion is, what gets them out of bed in the morning, even establishing what was their why for starting in veterinary medicine in the first place. And I think the other question I guess I would throw out for us to ask is that, um, and somebody asked me this the other day and I was like, oh my gosh, it's so true. How many of us, when we go to work in private practice, have an actual job description? I mean, I've created plenty of job descriptions for other people. (laughs) (laughs) Right. But I went to my first job in practice and it was you're a veterinary technician and you do everything, right? You answer the phone, you dispense medications, you do this. And so we don't have job descriptions. And then we don't have a clear, um, how can I grow? Like the more skills I get or the more knowledge I gain, can I get more money? Can I get a different title? So I think for me in some ways is, going all the way back to the basics and creating job descriptions. So maybe you have a CSR one, two, and three, and you have a vet assistant one, two, and three, and you have a vet tech one, two, and three, or whatever. And they all have very clear, defined expectations of how you move through that job ladder or that career ladder or that thing. But again, it you know it's that hamster wheel. I'm too busy. I don't have time to create job descriptions. So how do we help do that? What do we, how do we do that as a profession? I think that for any clinic, I mean, we, clinics constantly face change. Change in our profession is 
the normal instead of the exception. So for a clinic to be absolutely rigid in their way and never look outside the lines, it's it's not a great way to grow your business. I think you're absolutely right that we have to be agile and that we are the only thing constant in our life is change. So I guess when I talk about job descriptions, I don't know that I talk that I think about something rigid, right? For me, a job description is what are the basics that I do? And then how do we reward people for going above and beyond? So as I do evaluations of my staff and I talk about meets expectations and meets is not bad, right? Meets is a C. That's what you're, it means you've got the knowledge, you're doing what you're supposed to do, but everybody wants to be in an exceeds. So how do I define that? So now I'm tying in not only job descriptions, but performance evaluations and how often are we doing those and having those open conversations about, I want to do more. I am doing more. How am I bringing in money? Um, how am I benefiting patients in the practice? So I don't see for me a job description as a rigid. I see it as a guideline and basic. And then how do we grow from there? Nita, what do you think? Am I crazy? I might be. <laughs> no, I, a job description is a great place to start, but it's not the end result. Um, you can have somebody who takes an interest in, say, pet insurance, and they become the champion of that idea, bring their ideas back to the clinic and train everybody. Well, you're not going to go run, update the job description for that particular position. You know, have to be an expert on pet insurance. No, it's that particular person's passion to share that information. And then we have to figure out somehow to how to reward that in a way that's meaningful to that person. Like, I don't know that money's meaningful for everybody. Maybe it's uh, you did a great thing and you get an extra PTO day, or maybe you get a gift card to Starbucks for the rest of the year, or I don't know. But I mean, figuring out, you know, like I don't want people to feel like production is the answer either, right? If you do X, you're gonna get Y. And because I think that's not what it's about, but for some people it is, right? The reward system is important. So what does that look like too? And again, very individual and takes time to build all those things. Absolutely. Building a team by creating an atmosphere that celebrates them and supports their career paths is essential for your practice. Improving veterinary staff wellness and support improves the practice, which improves the profession and ultimately improves the outcome of your patients. We've had some amazing conversations so far. And we're excited to explore more topics that will help guide your clinic to better care. All of these full episodes are available on your favorite podcast app, so be sure to subscribe and never miss a new episode of Simple Interrupted. I'd also like to thank Nicole Clausen for being a guest on today's episode, as well as you, our listeners. We appreciate your support and hope you'll subscribe to our podcast, Simple Interrupted, on your favorite podcast app and share it with your fellow veterinary colleagues. This has been a co-production of Evergreen Podcasts and Pet Desk. Learn more about Pet Desk and how we're helping clinics guide their clients to better care at PetDesk.com. A special thanks to the Pet Desk team, as well as our Evergreen production team, producers Leah Haslidge and Nigel Galladay, and audio engineer Gray Sienna Longfellow. I'm your host, Mary Schwartz. Thanks for listening. <laughs>